the next talk before our break, and then I get to hand it over a little bit later to John to uh, get some work out of him, uh, is going to be given by Steve Grinspoon. Steve is a professor at uh, Harvard Medical School, uh, has, um, a, a, again, an international reputation for his work with uh, comorbidities, especially cardiovascular risk. Uh, he's the PI of a massive study that's underway that he'll tell us about. Uh, but Steve, uh, welcome to ISUSA in Chicago again, I think. Well, it's really a pleasure to be here and to be able to talk to you about cardiovascular disease and other comorbidities in HIV. Uh, these are my disclosures. So in terms of objectives today, and I'm going to tr I added some slides this morning to try and sync this talk in with Steve Deek, so you might see some additional slides. But um, my objectives are listed here uh, to describe the current epidemiology of cardiovascular disease in HIV patients, um, to describe the unique pathophysiology of that disease, and then the potential utility and limitations of some strategies to try and treat and prevent cardiovascular disease. And it's, it's not so easy, as you'll see. So here's the first uh, question, um, just to key us in so we're on the same page. Uh, most epidemiologic studies um, would suggest that rates of cardiovascular disease in HIV are equal to that seen in non-HIV, 10% higher, 50 to 100% higher, or 200% higher. What would be your uh, answer there? <laughs> Good choice, Kristen. <laughs> She chose my music for me, so. Reality, okay. All right, well, that's good. So that is the correct answer, 50 to 100% higher. Um, so most of you figured that out. Some of you, about a third of you, said it's only 10% higher, which unfortunately is not true. Most of the epidemiological studies suggest it's about 50 to 100% higher, and I'll go through that data. All right, so what's the current status of cardiovascular disease prevention in HIV? So obviously, as you've heard from these prior talks, even as the rates of death and mortality related to HIV have decreased, with the use of more potent ART, CVD rates remain increased among HIV patients and are a leading cause of morbidity and mortality. I'm going to show you some very new data to, to uh, suggest uh, to you that maybe ART is not sufficient to prevent the inflammation associated with HIV and that may contribute to cardiovascular disease. There's a very limited understanding of the mechanisms and treatment strategies for CVD and HIV, but as Paul said, Efforts are underway to try and to understand this more through some very important trials uh, that are now uh, ongoing. And uh, until, uh, until this point, there's been no large-scale pr large primary CBD prevention trial in HIV to guide you, and I'll show you about what's happening now. So in terms of uh, epidemiological studies and risk, this is a slide of a number of key epidemiological studies. The criteria to be listed on this slide are that these studies compared HIV and non-HIV infected patients and were able to determine a relative hazard ratio of cardiovascular disease in HIV. And um, yellow is the line of a uh, is the line of unity, so that would be one if they were the same, and you can see most of the bars pop over one, and on average it's about 50 to 100 percent higher. 
The most recent study was the VAX study, um, where the risk was 1.48 in HIV versus non-HIV. And importantly, these risks uh, remain very elevated, even adjusting for traditional risk factors like Framingham risk score. It's a very, very important point. And our study that we did, the Triant study a number of years ago, showed the same thing, uh, adjusting for traditional risk factors. So I'll ask a second question, um, leading into uh, further discussion here. Um, which of the following is not a common feature of coronary plaque in HIV patients? Uh, eccentric, uh, high-risk fatty plaque lesions, the vulnerable, so-called vulnerable lesions, inflamed plaque, or heavily calcified plaque? This is a little harder question than the last one. <laughs> My God. Right. Wow, that's really good. Maybe our work is getting picked up. Um, so, uh, yes, heavily calcified plaque is typically not seen. Now, if you were, if I was giving a general lecture on cardiovascular disease, and you asked me which imaging feature was most associated with cardiovascular disease, it would be heavily calcified plaque. So. Wow, we see a huge difference there, right? And the difference is that HIV patients are typically younger. Um, and yes, they have some traditional risks, but they had maybe less time for those traditional risks to build up in terms of cardiovascular disease risk factors. And we see a completely different pattern of cardiovascular disease, and I'll go through that in great detail. We see eccentric high-risk plaque, and we see inflamed plaque, as I'll show you. So this is the study of Gene Tryon in our group a couple years ago where we saw a 75% increased risk of cardiovascular disease in HIV versus non-HIV. This group, the non-HIV, was a million patients. That's a pretty big control group. Um, it was the entire partner's database registry. And you can see that the prevalence of hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia was higher in HIV-infected patients. So that's bad, and it, we should address those things. I'm certainly not saying otherwise. But when you accounted for those things, you know, they only accounted for 25% of the excess risk. So said in another way, 75% of the excess risk was not accounted for by this troika. And then when you threw in smoking, also a relatively small differential. So something is unaccounted for, and that's what I'm going to try and show you along the way here today. I think it's inflammation and immune activation, but you can be the judge of that uh, as I finish my talk. So HIV is a very interesting disease because, as Steve was saying, at the same time it's both a, a disease of immune suppression and a disease of immune activation, perhaps by residual viral uh, infection in reservoirs of very low levels or microbial translocation or viral reactivation in CMV. You have concomitant immune dysfunction and immune activation. And the immune activation persists even in patients on ART, as I'll show you. So um, in the general population, myocardial infarction, it's important to understand, it's a really important concept, does not typically result from the gradual expansion of a plaque, a subclinical plaque in your artery, okay? So that, that person that has a gradual expansion of a plaque is the person that has angina on the ninth step, 
Okay, that's your older person in your clinic. They're telling you, they're giving a very reproducible story of angina, and as they go up those steps, there's getting more and more occlusion of, and there's an inadequate blood flow with exercise, et cetera. That's a typical situation. That's exactly not what's happening in HIV. These patients are not having occlusive plaque. They're having um, eccentric plaque that is vulnerable to rupture at any time without any prodrome. That's really important. Recent studies in HIV suggest that the plaque is inflamed, non-calcified, and as I mentioned, associated with immune activation markers. So this is a study that we did a couple years ago that we published in JAMA, and we used FDG-PET as an index of uh, inflammation, and FDG is trapped in glycolysis as a glucose cogener, and it shows it's a marker for overall glucose metabolism, but also for macrophage. It's a nonspecific marker for macrophages. And in this study, you can see that HIV-infected patients had a much higher level of aortic target-to-background ratio than Framingham risk match control subjects. And the HIV patients had almost as much aortic or even a little bit more inflammation than cardiovascular disease patients, non-HIV, with known cardiovascular disease. And you can see here um, control and HIV, and you can see there's huge differences in the inflammation in the aorta of these patients. And Steve said before, he made a comment, we don't know if inflammation is associated with cardiovascular disease. Well, there's a lot of studies in non-HIV that draw the line at 1.7, and they say that, you know, you have an increased risk of mortality if your aortic TBR is more than 1.7. Now, those studies have not been done in HIV. We don't have enough patients in studies yet to say that, but if you were to extrapolate, you would say that this is a very at-risk population of patients. Now, what related to that inflammation? It wasn't CRP. Everyone says CRP. CRP is a very bad marker in HIV. It can go up and it can go down from various different things. What relates more in our hands and many others is um, markers of immune activation. In this case, it was CD163, which is a marker of macrophage activation. Now, what do you look at? What, what is the histological correlate of high FDG PET? And here you can see this is CD68 staining macrophages right at the subintimal uh, surface. And patients with high FDG PET below the fibrous cap have just gobs of sort of macrophages that are infiltrating here. And ultimately, the fibrous cap in such patients is thin and is ruptures. And when that ruptures, their exposure is to the uh, subintimal space and plaque forms, and it's acute, acute myocardial event. And so these patients are a substrate and are at risk for that. Now, recently, we had the opportunity to do another study, which is just coming out in Journal of Infectious Diseases. And we, f we found out that there's a breast cancer imaging agent out there called Tilmanicept. You you've never heard of it. I never heard of it. Uh, and what this agent does is it's, it's uh, specific for the macrophage. It's a CD206-specific agent. And in breast cancer, women are imaged with this agent to identify the sentinel node. Uh, after surgery, and that was a predictor of survival in breast cancer. And I heard about this, that it, it's CD206 specific, and I know that uh, HIV-infected patients have a lot of, you know, macrophage activation, immune activation, CD206 is a key receptor. So we had this idea to image uh, HIV-infected patients with this agent for the first time in, in, in humans, uh, looking any, anywhere else other than the breast. And actually, this has been done at San Francisco for Kaposi's sarcoma as well. Um, uh, and I think if those studies are positive. I'm not 100% I'm not sure if they've been published yet. But we got some actually striking results in this study. And um, 
These are just three representative patients. And you can see the arch of the aorta here, and the red is bad. And these are three Framingham wrist match non-HIV. And just the aorta just lights up in these HIV patients with a very specific imaging agent. It turns out that 20%, when you do a pixelated analysis, 20% of the entire aortic volume is at five times muscle level, so huge levels. So these are complete, these guys, these guys up here, 49, 50, walking around, pretty good lipids, don't smoke. They're ticking time bombs, okay? And they don't know it, and these kind of agents are very important, and I'm sure there'll be further studies with this. And, you know, one of the things we'll have to do is understand if uh, we can either attach a moiety to this agent to target it to the therapy or use this as a readout of another kind of therapy, such as statins, which I'll talk about. These are treated patients. Wow. Treated patients. It's, it's a pretty impressive. Um, it was a small study, but uh, there's actually six in the HIV group, but I only showed uh, three here. So looking at CT angiography, these are initial studies that were published by Janet Lowe in, in AIDS, and uh, this is the first demonstration of increased subclinical plaque in HIV-infected patients. And here you want to focus on the top number. These are Framingham risk match control on HIV patients, and there was about twice as much, the prevalence of plaque was about twice as high in HIV-infected patients. And you'll hear the word Agatson score bantied about. That's, a, that's a, a number for calcium, your calcium score. And the median calcium score was zero in the HIV in the girl because they're young. They're in their 40s, high 40s. And typically, young people don't have high calcium scores, as I was saying. The segments, the non-calcified segments were much higher, and that was the basis. This study was the basis for subsequent studies, which confirmed Wendy Post in the MAX cohort um, had virtually identical data in a, in a subset that was twice as large as this. So um, we did show this, and it's now been confirmed, this non-calcified plaque uh, in these HIV-infected patients. Interestingly, 6.5% had more than a 70% stenosis, which almost made statistical significance. So there's also some HIV patients, a small number, who do have relatively high-grade stenosis. So what am I talking about when I mention, I keep mentioning vulnerable plaque? And uh, this is a vulnerable plaque. A non-vulnerable plaque, this yellow area would be much thinner, and the plaque would sort of, sort of pinch into the um, aortic uh, lumen here, okay, or the, or the arterial lumen. But this plaque is eccentric. It's fatty. It's off to the side, okay? And this membrane is very thin. It's called a thin cap fibroatheroma. And this is a classically at-risk lesion. And you can see, using coronary angiography, circled in red, you may not be able to see that well, but there's a juicy sort of eccentric plaque just sitting there. And uh, we have, we have uh, two terms. One is eccentricity, or positive remodeling, and the other term is low attenuation, or how fatty, or non-calcified is. So interesting, it's the non-calcified part that attributes risk, and we published this article as a follow-up in AIDS as well, and we looked at the percentage of patients using our original cohort that had these high-risk plaques, and you should see very striking differences among HIV and non-HIV for at least one low attenuation plaque or at least one positively remodeled plaque. 
I don't think Max uh, has yet to, done more f to do morphometry like this, but um, I suspect it'll be true if, if they do it. And this is another potential harbinger of uh, badness in these patients, the at-risk vulnerability index of these patients. So what, I'm, what I've shown you so far is a new paradigm for atherogenesis in HIV in which persistent viral replication and microbial translocation lead to this state of T-cell activation and monocyte activation, which leads to high-risk plaque and inflammation. So this leads us to uh, our current state of what are the challenges in preventing and treating uh, coronary heart disease in HIV, and there are a number of challenges. Um, we need to understand the optimal timing and use of antiretroviral therapy uh, to understand its effects on immune function and minimize metabolic effects. And there, you know, if I were to ask you, do you think uh, giving someone antiretroviral therapy improves inflammation and immune activation, I would venture to say that virtually all of you would raise your hand. And it does, but the question is, is it sufficient? And I'll show you that data in a minute, which we published uh, this year. Um, we need to identify patients with disease our, and I'm going to talk about the new cholesterol uh, treatment guidelines. Our current risk identification strategies are not adequate. I'll show you some data on that. We need to develop a safe and effective strategy for primary prevention, especially for those not identified by current algorithms but with substantial subclinical disease, i.e., our patients, um, and develop an intervention that addresses, and this is really important, both traditional and immune-related risks. And I'm going to try and focus on one treatment that may uh, hit those two uh, goalposts. So shown here is sort of a little table that you can use to organize your thoughts. Uh, on the top are traditional risk modification strategies, and I would say that the two I'm going to speak about today are aspirin and statins, but there's also antihypertensive and anti-diabetic and, of course, anti-smoking. Um, and then on the bottom are immune inflammatory modulators, and I would put in that bucket antiretroviral therapy statins, CCR5 antagonists, interleukin antagonists, and methotrexate. And there's actually, amazingly, studies which are going to come out on all these agents in the, near, in the next couple of years. So you're going to see specifically derived studies on anti-inflammatory strategies in HIV. The, the fact that we're considering giving methotrexate to HIV-infected patients shows you how far we've come in our quest to quell this inflammation. But I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to simple question, which, which thing is on both lists? Statins, okay? So why are statins on both lists? Okay, this is a really important point. We all know that statins lower cholesterol and they lower LDL, but you may not be familiar with the fact that statins have potent, um, pluripotent effects to improve immune activation, including monocyte chemoattraction and other uh, aspects of immune activation in the data I'll show you. So they are potentially very interesting drug because they're on both lists. So this is the second study I knew that I added today, and I don't know how well this is projecting, but we did a study that we uh, published in JAMA uh, Cardiology last year, and we took ART-naive patients and we gave them ART, a tripla. These were standard patients. It was nine months after they, the, the median duration to treatment was nine months, so they're relatively soon after infection. Uh, and uh, this, this study makes a, a very important point. Now, before I go over the slide, I want to tell you what happened to their immunological indices. Well, they all became undetectable. CD4 went up. That's good. 
But when you looked at really careful flow cytometry, they didn't quite normalize their immune activation. The CD16 percent of inflamed monocytes was higher than the, we had a control population as well who obviously didn't get treated. So there were some persistent effects on immune activation that didn't go away. So what do you see here? Look at this top before treatment. You see a lot of inflammation in the aorta, but you're more used to seeing these big juicy lymph nodes in these untreated HIV patients, right? When you give ART, completely disappear by PET. This is using PET FTG. So that is very interesting and expected. But what do you see in the aorta? Not much. <laughs> actually, this actually increased over time net among these patients in this study. So I'm not saying ART increased this, but I am saying very conclusively that it was not sufficient to decrease it, okay? And that is a very important point that antiretroviral therapy, good as it may be and key as it is, and of course you should use it and you should use it early and aggressively, and it'll certainly knock down the things you want it to knock down, but it may not be sufficient to quell this ongoing immune activation as suggested by our flow cytometry and this image in this patient and by the net aggregate statistics in the study. Now, there's some other studies that look at uh, antiretroviral therapy. Um, SMART was a randomized trial of continuous versus intermittent ART guided by CD4, and uh, stringent viral suppression reduced AIDS and CBD events. So that was an important study. The hypothesis of that study was the opposite, that with stringent therapy, you'd have more metabolic effects and perhaps more CBD. It was the opposite came out. So SMART was a key study. And then you had START, which was a randomized trial of immediate versus delayed ART in uh, naive HIV patients with a CD4 greater than 500. So earlier initiation reduced AIDS events, but they did not reduce CBD events. And this is often misquoted because people look at the composite endpoint, which had non-AIDS-related events, et cetera, too. But when you look at the line for cardiovascular disease, there was no difference, okay? And there weren't that many events, so that the authors have said we didn't really have power. But the bottom line is, in this pretty giant study, there was no signal for earlier ART on CBD, not on other um, complications. So I'll turn for a minute to aspirin, because everyone asked me this, and I'll preempt a question in the question and answer period. What about aspirin? Um, aspirin is a key element of cardiovascular disease treatment and prevention, and this was a study um, by Jean Tryant, and here she looked at the overall rates of aspirin use in HIV-infected and, and uh, non-HIV-infected, and you can see that overall um, there was not huge differences in women, and uh, the overall aspirin rates of uh, use of uh, uh, rates of use of aspirin were higher in the uninfected patients, uh, particularly in men, and overall. When she looked at patients at low cardiovascular risk, the rates of use were the same, but the striking finding of this study was in the third panel. In patients at high risk for CVD with high CHD risk, the use of aspirin was strikingly different among HIV patients. I have no idea why this is. Um, I don't know if there's some anxiety about giving aspirin or people forget to give aspirin or there's, I don't know. But you know, I'm not an aspirin expert, but I, I, I do know that this would cause me pause um, in terms of our traditional armamentarium. Um, now I want to turn to statins, and I think that's sort of the elephant in the room, you know, should we give our HIV patients statins? So I want to remind people of the history of statins. This is a meta-analysis of many studies, and what this meta-analysis is 170,000 
non-HIV patients, 26 studies, and, oh, sorry, statins were shown to reduce uh, events by 22% per 39 milligrams per deciliter lowering of LDL. So tried and true and virtually all the studies and the net, and the net effect was, was very good. So it was a 22% reduction for 39 milligrams per deciliter lowering in LDL. And it's taken as dogma that, you know, when you lower LDL, you will prevent events. One problem in HIV patients is the LDL is increased in general. So whether this translates to HIV-infected patients is unclear. We have some recent data from another trial in non-HIV where the LDL levels weren't elevated. You, remember, you may remember that as the Jupiter trial, and I'm going to tell you about that. And to make matters more complicated, in 2013, um, the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology announced rather abruptly that there's new guidelines to give statins. Uh, and these are very complicated. Can you, I, let me have a raise, people raise their hands. Who, who is familiar and has used these guidelines? Okay, that's good. So let me just refresh your memory for those who have not. If you have um, known cardiovascular disease, you go on a statin. That's secondary prevention, it's very clear. Next, you look at the LDL. If it's more than 190, the guidelines say go on a statin. And I think everyone would agree at levels that high you should go on a statin. If you're between 70 and 190 and you have diabetes, go on a statin. If you're between 70 and 90 and you don't have diabetes, I don't know. That's where the big area is, okay? And what this tells you is to go onto the internet, go to the AHA website, sorry, and um, cal have a score calculated, okay? And you can do this, you can play around. I actually find it useful for my patients to actually calculate the score in front of them. It's a holistic score. It's not based so much on LDL. It counts age, race, smoking. And you can have crazy results with this thing. You can be 60, African-American, have an LDL of 90, uh, and maybe smoke, maybe not, and be recommended for statins because race is a very important element of this prediction thing. So there's sort of discrepancies in this scale that people have complained about. And people really are nervous that it's so divorced from LDL. But in fact, that is what's recommended. Uh, and so between 70 to 90, 190, if you don't have diabetes, the recommendation currently is to go get, uh, to have your score calculated. Notably, on one footnote in this like 100-page guideline, there's one tiny little asterisk, and it says, note, no data are available in HIV-infected patients and other relevant populations. Okay, so. I just want to make a point that this was derived in non-HIV-infected patients. All right. Well, how do these guidelines, you know, how, how do they uh, stack up today, and uh, how important are they? And this is uh, Markella Zani published um, this sort of third in a series of papers from this cohort that we, uh, that we published on with that, in whom we knew plaque characteristics. And I'm using here the 2004 ATP guideline recommendation, or the new ones, for who is recommended for uh, statins based on stratification of no coronary plaque or high-risk coronary plaque. And what you can see here is that more patients are recommended for statins with, uh, under the new guidelines. That's good. But I want you to look at this set of bars here. This is 25%. So 25% of patients with high-risk plaque would be recommended for a statin under the new guidelines. So that's good, right? But the converse is horrible. 
That means 75% of patients with high-risk plaque are not being recommended for statins because the guidelines have nothing to do with the reality of what's happening in the coronary artery of HIV-infected patients. They're, they're, they're asynchronous. They're, they're, they're not getting at each other. So it's a really important point. So we don't know really who to give statins to in, among HIV-infected patients based on their unique features. Now, there have been some studies, and I just included this slide from the very, very recent study by Matt Feinstein, um, and uh, this was published in JAMA Cardiology. It was a very interesting paper. It wasn't a prospective study, but it was a huge retrospective study, and they looked at patients um, uh, uh, in these uh, particular cohorts, and they looked at the observed versus the um, predicted rates. And here the observed, and so they're looking at uh, white men, black men, uh, and various white women and black women. So it's important to, to look at racially stratified results. But you can see here, particularly among black men, at the lower scores, there were more observed than predicted events. Ipso facto, this underpredicted, okay? But at the higher risk, there tended to be the opposite, so it overpredicted. So who knows, okay? Who knows really whether these guidelines actually accurately predict this? This is, you know, I, and I think one of the purposes of reprieve, which I'll tell you about, is in a prospective fashion to understand this. There, we don't really know, we don't have a good prediction algorithm for um, events in HIV. But it's a little, it's a little worrisome that perhaps they underpredict, and it's not unexpected given all the excess inflammation I talked about, but it's also not clear if they're overpredicting out here. All right, the last question. Um, statins have unique potential to work in HIV because they reduce triglycerides, they improve glucose simultaneously with lipids, they lower LDL, or they lower LDL and may have uh, anti-inflammatory effects. Okay, I kind of presaged my answer with this, but I want to, I already told you the answer, so that's okay. But I want to go over some points here. Um, they definitely lower LDL, but I was speaking of that they may have pluripotent effects. And they don't really do triglycerides that much, by the way. A few of them do, atorvastatin, but in general, that's not the drug you pull off your shelf to lower triglycerides. Fibrates are more sort of better for that. But there's a huge debate about whether triglycerides even contribute to cardiovascular disease. So that they're viewed as a sort of, it's a little more passe these days. Not only do they not improve glucose, there's some data that suggests they aggravate glucose, okay? And that's, I want to throw that in there to make this particular point, and I'll talk more about that. So this is the Jupiter study that I mentioned before, which got everyone very sort of excited about statins in non-high LDL situations. And this um, was a group of non-HIV patients who had LDL less than 130 but high CRP, okay? So they were, quote, unquote, inflamed with normal lipids, okay? And you can see that resuvastatin in this particular study had a very, very nice effect to reduce uh, events, okay? The LDL was reduced 47 milligrams per deciliter and should have resulted in a hazard ratio of 0.73 based on that regression I just showed you. 
but instead the hazard ratio was 0.56, greater than expected based on LDL lowering alone, which has the implication of it's lowering something else, okay? They couldn't really figure that out in Jupiter, and it was a critique of the study, but it's an important point. Now, resuvastatin did aggravate glucose in this particular study, and it's sort of buried in the manuscript, but it's an important point. Now, there are other statins beside resuvastatin, which I'll tell you. Here's a couple of studies which show that statins lower LDL by similar amounts in HIV versus non-HIV, and they also have pleiotropic effects. These are studies by uh, McComsey and Funderburg and a couple others. Soluble CD14, a measure of immune activation reduced by resuvastatin. Uh, you can see here CD, tissue factor positive, macrophages reduced, and uh, the last one, um, CD38 um, positive uh, T cells are affected as well. So statins have pluripotent effects. More recently, there were studies on Intrepid, which were published in Lancet, and one that was published in AIDS, um, showing that patavastatin, a new statin, has remarkably positive effects to lower these immune activation markers. Okay. In terms of side effects, statins are pretty well tolerated. You can see that 2% in one large study had myalgias versus a lower percentage in non-HIV, but still this percentage is fairly low. We're at the 1% to 2%, and that'll be an important aspect of reprieve to determine how these drugs are tolerated. In terms of statins, which you should be able to use, only use these on this list, okay? Some of the other ones are not good to use because they interact with protease inhibitors too much, okay? For example, you don't see simvastatin on this list because it's a total no-no to use, okay? So these are the ones you could use. Uh, and Intrepid compared head-to-head Pitava with, with Prava, and Pitava blew Prava out of the water in Lancet HIV and AIDS, uh, two articles in AIDS, actually. So a really nice set of studies on that. But in terms of the lowering effects, you see Pitava is pretty powerful, but you have Resuva, Atorva. Atorva has a mild interaction with protease inhibitors, so the word on the street is not to use more than 20 to 40 milligrams. We used 40 in one study, but you have to be careful. Prava and Batava have no interactions with antiretroviral therapy. This is a study we published in Lancet HIV looking at plaque, and we gave HIV patients Atorva, and um, you can see that we lowered non-calcified plaque by 15% versus an increase of 15%. And you could see here, I just love this picture. This is an eccentric, high-risk, low-attenuation plaque, just the time I was telling you, type I was telling you about, in an HIV patient before and after statin therapy. And, you know, remarkable effects to, oh, it's 12 months. Remarkable effects. Uh, also lowered LDL and lowered LPPLA2. So I think these studies suggest that there is a need for a large randomized clinical trial to inform practice. It's, you know, it's unknown if statins will prevent cardiovascular disease, particularly those people with low traditional risk factors. They've been largely well tolerated in small studies, but we don't even know if they'll work or how they would work, whether they lower, work by lowering LDL or having effects on anti-inflammatory pathways. Which leads us to Reprieve, which Paul mentioned. Um, Reprieve is a, is a really big effort on the part of your government uh, and your tax dollars to fund a key question of whether uh, statins improve cardiovascular disease, rent, uh, prevent cardiovascular disease. It stands for Randomized Trial to Prevent Vascular Events in HIV. It's 100 sites in U.S., Thailand, and Canada. I can now say we've opened in Brazil, Botswana, South Africa. We're going into Peru. We're going into Haiti. Um, we're going all over the place, and we're trying to be a big generalized study um, 
We're, I'm proud to say that we're over 50% recruited. Uh, if you have patients, and I'll show you the entry criteria in a minute, who are eligible, please refer them in. It's funded by National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. It's run out of the ACTG, but through non-ACTG sites as well, and there's some pharmaceutical contributions, but the primary funding is NIH funding. So this is Reprieve. Uh, we take patients who have no history of cardiovascular disease, an ASCVD risk score less than 15, uh, and depending on your LDL, I won't get into that, but low to moderate risk. And we randomize them to Batava or placebo. We follow them for five to six years. We're looking at cardiovascular events. And we have also an embedded sub-study. We're also looking, by the way, at renal events, HIV events, AIDS events, cognitive events, muscular events, kidney events. I mean, this, this study will be able to answer many, many questions on how statins are tolerated in HIV. And we have this mechanistic sub-study, which we look at the effects of statins on um, the uh, high-risk plaque and also effects on immune function in relationship to plaque. So in conclusion, I think I've told you here today that there are traditional and non-traditional risk factors which contribute to increased cardiovascular disease and HIV, manifesting as inflamed, non-calcified, high-risk plaque in association with immune activation. CVD events in these patients may be difficult to characterize by traditional risk prediction algorithms. Modulation of traditional and non-traditional risk is really necessary to prevent CVD. I'm sure of that. Just don't know how to do it quite yet. Statins may be one effective means to prevent CVD and HIV and should be tested in large trials, which is now uh, happening, to determine optimal practice patterns. So I think I'll stop there, and thank you very much for your attention. Have a seat. Thanks, Steve. Uh, another great uh, summary. Uh, just to let you know that uh, we're doing lunch a little bit later than usual today. To make up for that, we're, we, during the break, we'll have some foodstuffs out here to uh, tide you over. And also announcing that for the people up in the overflow room when it's time for break to come on downstairs. We'd like to see you, uh, but also uh, like to share some, uh, some nutritious uh, snacks with you. So. Uh, Great, thank you. Um, and if, if my tweeting can help with my 20 followers, okay. I just <laughs> let them know about the shockingly low rate of aspirin use in right. HIV-infected people with high-risk disease. So I'm, I think you're going to see those numbers turn around very quickly. All right. All of my followers have my same last name, too. So it's, <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, but so, semi-seriously, tell us a little bit more about aspirin and, and what we might be doing to, to try to change those numbers. Yeah, I think, you know, the question is, does the mechanism of aspirin, you know, is it rational to suggest that it may have something special in HIV? There's, there are some studies to suggest that some drugs, um, uh, for example, abacavir, you, you know the whole abacavir controversy, does abacavir cause cardiovascular disease. You know, that question is out there. It's toxic, that question. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't, you notice I didn't get into that question, but what is one of the purported mechanisms of that? Platelet activation. Okay, that's the number one purported mechanism. So I'm just retiring that question all right, for the card. No, no, you can, you can <laughs> ask me. So, uh, so aspirin obviously affects, you know, platelet function, and so it may be rational to, to use it in that regard. I don't think there's been any studies that I'm aware of to show some poor reaction with ART, although there, there may be. So I think it's just generally understudied. I think maybe HIV practitioners, you know, 
don't believe it contributes, you know, this plaque contributes, uh, this thrombosis, but I think it does, based on what I said with a vulnerable plaque, so I, I think that we should try aspirin. People have asked me why didn't we include aspirin in reprieve. This is a good question. We do allow people to be on aspirin and we'll stratify for that. But if you know anything about trial design, once you add a second treatment, you have to have a factorial study, which would mean that instead of being 6,500 patients, it'd probably be 15,000 patients, and it's just not doable. So we had to pick our best uh, treatment strategy. So people can be on aspirin, not be on aspirin and reprieve. We encourage everyone to get healthy treatment and put your patients on aspirin and send them into reprieve. So um, why not just treat every HIV-infected person with, uh, statin. Uh, with statin? You've made such a great case for the inflammation and the lack of yeah. kind of prediction with cardiovascular risk factors, statins are... Yeah, well, so that debate is the same debate as in the non-HIV yeah, world, yeah. and some people say put in the drinking water, and other people <laughs> say, you know, you know you're It's almost you're, gonna you're be put over the counter, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, so I think the issue in HIV is a little, little harder and, and causes one more pause. First of all, there's some, you know, I showed you that slide about muscle myalgias, and I said it was pretty low, but if you took a really close look at that, the rate in HIV was four times the rate in non-HIV. It was 2% versus 0.5%. You could be an optimist or a pessimist about that, but the fact of the matter is we don't know if they're going to be tolerated, and statins, you know, can cause myalgias and muscle function. There's some question about on cognitive function. Um, there's some questions on liver function. Your, your HIV patients are not, your non-HIV patients, they're on tons of drugs, they have in, you know, all these things. So I think tolerability is a huge issue. Uh, and the other thing is, I think if we just assume they're gonna work, we'll be in a situation in which we're sort of obligating our patients to something that we're not 100% sure is true, and then how, f how much do you press when they have a side effect? It's sort of, the situation of unknown data, you know, it, it, it robs you from being, you know, dogmatic about something because you just don't know the answer. I'm distinguishing that from s secondary prevention. There, there, no yep. one, no one would argue for secondary prevention in HIV. Even though there's no studies, I think you just don't want to have those kind of studies with placebo. And I don't remember if you showed the data, but um, what about HIV-infected people with an indication with the current guidelines? Yeah, they would be. They would not be eligible for reprieve. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, I, but I think you showed us that statin use is oh, still oh, lower than yes, it should be. Even yes, with a, yeah. Anything. I mean, yes, it is lower based on uh, the guidelines and using CT angiography. You know, the vast majority of people who should be on a statin with subclinical disease are not yeah, on a yeah. statin. Um, so that's true. So, so we, I think that yeah. should be part of our message. Absolutely. Too, I mean, you're not going to be able to get a CT angiography, but you can make a presumption that some number will, and that's why we think there's equipoise for reprieve. You know, I'm telling you to do it, but not to do it, you know, because we don't actually know, so I think that's where equipoise comes in for a large clinical trial. Um, if that's positive, there's no more equipoise for placebo, and you should treat your patients. Well, so somebody actually did ask about imaging. Is, is imaging uh, necessary? Do you recommend it routinely? Well, some, you could get a CAC score, which is the cheaper version of CT, but I just finished telling you that cal calcium, core, is, not really cal calcium yeah. is not a good thing to measure. If you had someone who had a lot of money, they could get a CT angiography off insurance um, and or enroll in a study where that was available. Uh, I actually think it would be useful, but it's clearly not ready for prime time to recommend out. It costs about, you know, 
four or five hundred dollars per CT angiography. There's a debate in the non-HIV world about which tests to use, and there's an increasing appreciation of maybe try to use that test. Um, you know, you could do uh, carotid, uh, you know, ultrasound, um, a reasonable uh, test. Um, but again, HIV patients may have an unusual type of lesions there. So, I don't think imaging is quite ready for prime okay. time. So, uh, to be honest, I don't remember your CV well enough to know. I think of you as a cardiologist, but... No, I'm an endocrinologist. Yeah. Okay. Big difference, but... Yeah. So, if you were a cardiologist, what would you think about diastolic dysfunction in HIV? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't even... Sorry. This is like a giant topic for a two-day symposium, and he just throws it out at me. Um, <laughs> Okay, so there is evidence. It of, was asked. There, was, there is evidence for diastolic dysfunction. In fact, I didn't even get into it. I stuck to the aorta, but I didn't actually talk to you about the myocardium, if you noticed. And there are studies using MR spectroscopy to show steatosis and inflammation in the myocardium, per se. And so that's a whole other thing. That may be contributing to a stiffening of the heart and diastolic dysfunction. And now there are studies not only looking to prevent atherosclerotic coronary disease, but to improve cardiac function. So there are studies on statins that are starting, uh, and there are studies on um, uh, RAS, renin-angiotensin inhibitors that are starting. So uh, it, it's another huge area. Um, uh, there's a higher incidence of heart failure in HIV-infected patients, which this person is hinting at with the question, and it's typically um, uh, diastolic dysfunction or preserved ejection fraction heart failure. What to do about that remains unknown. Yeah, yeah. Not easy to treat. Not easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, question from our uh, upstairs uh, friends. Uh, any difference in cardiovascularist between uh, well-controlled versus poorly controlled HIV. Mm -hmm. Does the poorly controlled HIV have a documented higher cardiovascular risk? Uh, yeah, a, Reprieve will be able to answer that question because there's been no studies that I'm, I'm you know, aware of. I mean, you, you could look, I guess you could look at the Feinstein studies um, and the, and the, um, and the maybe studies. a little bit at SMART, yeah, I guess. Yeah, a little bit in SMART. And I think, you know, SMART didn't show a huge signal. Um, the START didn't show a huge signal. Yeah. Um, SMART may have shown a small signal. But, I, you know, the problem is they're not measuring immune activation markers. If, if you look at um, Nader CD4 and viral load, there are some studies which suggest the lower your Nader CD4, and the higher your viral load, the, the more at risk you are for myocardial disease. It's a relatively small hazard ratio, but it is true. So okay. that would argue for what Steve is saying is, uh, you know, even though START didn't show it, based on the Nader CD4 data, to get your patients started earlier to get that set point uh, fixed. Uh, what about lipid particles in cardiovascular? Yeah, uh, so uh, lipid particles are important. When I mention LDL, I don't mention oxidized LDL. Oxidized LDL is very important. That gets part of the, uh, the atheroma in the foam cell. Uh, in fact, statins, uh, this we published uh, in AIDS recently, the statins lower oxidized LDL quite a bit. It's one of their potentially important mechanisms. Um, and it's important, not in, not in a clinical setting, but in a research setting to perhaps measure oxidized LDL. I think that's one of the mechanisms by which statins may be so effective. Lots of questions left, but thank you, Steve. All right.